Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you this bright and sunny, crisp morning. All of you uh, have to shake off the icicles before you came. Everybody okay with no broken pipes and all of that are frozen. I suppose they're not broken. They're still frozen if they're anything. Warmest toast, okay. Well, this morning we're continuing in our study of Matthew. Uh, this morning we're in chapter 3, the last two verses, 16 and 17. And as we get into these two verses, as with everything in the Word of God, but there are certain activities or verses that are not more meaningful in a specific way, but in a general way are more impacting and are more revelatory of the purpose of God. So they're just those passages that bring out the essentials of what God is doing and who he is. So as an example, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14 would be one of those grand nuggets of revelation. Romans chapter 3, verses, I think, is it 24, 25 to 27 and so on. Grand nuggets of revelation. And so when we come to this particular set of verses, what we have here is for the first time in the history of the human race since the fall of Adam, since Genesis 3-6, we have for the first time the glaring in your face upon the earth revelation of God's purpose in reality among us in fullness. Now, you have God's purpose and reality among us in shadows and types and in pictures throughout the Old Testament. But everything that God has been doing and promising and saying and moving toward and pointing to and guaranteeing, everything is now being displayed in the most dramatic way. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Oh, I know that we've seen stars and light. And we understand something of what that means. And I know that we have seen the Magi. And we understand something of what that means. Remember, the calling of the Gentiles. I know that we have heard the message of the angel to Mary. Call his name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sin. I know that we have had the birth and then the warning of the angel of this family to leave Bethlehem and escape into Egypt and then coming back some probably four, five, six years later and settling in Nazareth. I know that. But you see, all of that, even though God's revelation of himself is upon the earth, 
is still not discerned and displayed, and it is still shrouded, you know what I mean, covered over. You just see a baby there. You see a star in the sky. A man gets a voice from um, a message from an angel and he moves over here back and forth. And all we see is a family. All we know is, hey, she was supposed to have conceived by the Holy Spirit. You know, we don't know. So all we're, we're seeing is that. We're just seeing another family, although an, a unique family, a unique child, but that's all we're seeing. All we are seeing. That's not all that's there, but that's all we see. And then, 30 years later, man comes to the wilderness, and he approaches this, as it were, wild man, wild prophet out there who is putting people under the water and bringing them up and yelling, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, this wild-looking Elijah. And a man comes up to him. And all of a sudden, Elijah, who has been baptizing people and bringing them in and come on, all of a sudden he stops. And he recognizes this is not just another man. He recognizes by the Spirit, you can read that in John 1, that this is God's Messiah. John one twenty nine. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember Matthew one twenty one. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. He recognizes this. Oh, no, I don't baptize you. You have to baptize me. And Jesus said, in order to fulfill all righteousness, I need to be baptized by you. Remember that? And John said, this is the one who is coming after me that has been prophesied, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Remember in verse 11 of chapter 3 of Matthew. And so in verses 16 and 17, all of a sudden, you have a baptism taking place. And I suppose what concerns me is as believers, we read these two verses quickly and we move along. And yet when we get to these two verses, we should be stopped in our tracks by the Spirit and literally transfixed and amazed and overwhelmed with what God is doing, displaying, and saying about this one who is being baptized and about himself in this activity of baptism. So I want to encourage us as we read the word. If you read through the Bible in a year, then do that. But then take another opportunity during the day to read the passages in this Bible slowly, contemplatively, asking the Holy Spirit, show me the depths of the revelation of your grace that are hidden in these passages that God gives to those who will seek and wait for him to give it to him. You see, because God is not just throwing his pearls out there willy-nilly. 
They're hidden in the ground. Remember Luke 15? There was something hidden. And she, what? They, 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 they um, not Luke 15, the, the, the pearl of a great price. You know, the man found the pearl. He sold everything to have that pearl. He persisted in having that pearl. So what do we have in these verses? Well, in these verses, we have at least the revelation of three astounding truths. This morning, I'll begin to talk about them and continue next week. And I don't know how many weeks it's going to take me to talk about just these two verses. We have the revelation in Jesus being baptized in verse 16. This is God anointing his royal priest for the ministry set before him. Secondly, we have a revelation in Jesus' baptizing, baptism that this is the one who was anointed to be the anointer or baptizer of the Holy Spirit. Did you understand what I just said? He is anointed to be the anointer or baptizer of his people. And then third, the culmination, the crescendo of it all, the reason for all of it is that as Jesus is anointed to be God's royal son, who is given authority upon the earth as a man to do all that is necessary to be able to be the one who anoints God's people with God's spirit, pouring out his spirit upon his people as water is poured out. All of this so that as God's people fellowship with him in that most intimate fellowship in the bosom of the Father, you see that in 118 of John, the greatest revelation of God that there is is being expressed when you look at verse 17. The glory of God's nature and character. These three are at least these three are visibly and audibly demonstrated and shown forth, manifested in this baptism. So you see why I say verses 16 and 17 of Matthew 3 are not to be approached quickly to go through them and to move on to other things. Because what we will see when this is completed in verse 17 we will see the living, vibrant, authoritative result of who this man is upon the earth as the very next thing that we will see is this anointed royal priest 
will confront the God of this world and accomplish in the wilderness what Adam failed to do in the garden. But that's for a couple of weeks down the road. So again, once again, to see the connectivity and the comprehensiveness and the unity of God's word. Because what we are seeing in these verses moving on, having begun in chapter 1 of Matthew, is the folding out, the unfolding, the blossoming of all that God has been doing since the beginning in Genesis 1-1, since the fall to recapture, to bring back all of his intention that he began in chapter 1 and 2 for Adam and God's, his own people, he's bringing it back. And now upon the earth is the man who has come to submit himself to the anointing of God the Father for the purpose of being God's uncreated eternal son as the son of man to do what Adam could not fail to do for God's glory. We see this. This is what we see. So let me encourage you. Take time. Oh God, that we would take time to read verses like this and Read it and just sit and let God speak truth about himself to you, to us, right? Take time. Don't be in a hurry. Don't be moving your mouth asking for all kinds of stuff. Our prayer time should be much more about listening and knowing God than chattering to him about ourselves. And the more we receive from him about him, I think the less we'll have to chatter about ourselves. It's important to chatter about ourselves and the needs, but it's more important to know this God who receives our chatter. Amen? So that's where we are. So let me read verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Isn't that interesting? He came up. They didn't keep him down. You heard about the pastor who was baptizing the lady in the, in the river. And he says, do you believe? Yes, I believe. And boom, underneath. And he brings her up again. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Boom, underneath again. He brings her up again. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Boom, one more time. Coming on up again. Do you believe? Yes. What do you believe? I believe you're trying to drown me. <laughs> so G Jesus comes up from the water. <laughs> he comes up from the water. And behold, and behold, behold. When you see the word behold in the Bible, stop and look at what is going to be holding Showing us because it's God saying, look at what is going to be shown to you. Behold, behold, stop your reading for a moment and get prepared to read carefully and slowly and to suck in and to allow it to permeate you. 
because what is coming after that word behold is something of God and from God that is startling and great and glorious. Amen? Behold. Don't just read and behold and move along. Behold. Where am I? Here I am. The heavens were open to him. And John saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Jesus. <gasps> Never happened before on earth. This is the first time activity of something absolutely extraordinary. Never happened before. Never has heaven opened personally to a man since the fall. Never. Remember, this is absolutely unique ground of revelation about God and about his purpose in sending his son and about the benefit to us. So what's happening here? I'll try to go through the rest of the material. And I'm going to say more quickly why. Because we went through a lot of this. Some of you are going to recognize some of this material uh, from the, the study we did in Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Okay, it's going to be tippy-toeing in that area. If you want more detail uh, in what we're going to say, you're just going to have to go get the CDs or whatever it is and the notes or something from that series. So I'm going to go through it. I'm going to go through it a little bit of a detail, but not as much as I typically would. Why? Because hopefully most of you have heard it and you know it already, and I'm going through it a little bit of a detail that I am for those of you who may not have heard it before just to kind of get you in, in line of, with what God is doing here. So, first of all, God's royal priest. Remember when I said there are three things that are being revealed here. First, God's royal priest. Make sure you see those two different words, royal and priest. Royal and priest. Authority and mediator. You see? Authority and mediator. Royal priest. Here's what's happening. First of all, Jesus is being anointed as God's authority, authoritative mediator. God's authoritative Messiah. That's what's happening. Not first one, two, three, but first in, in our discussion. By being baptized Jesus was anointed or was being anointed by God to be God's royal priest who would fulfill Adam's role as God's royal agent. Remember in Genesis 1.28, God gave Adam the authority to be his royal agent. He says, go out and do what? Subdue and have dominion over the earth. Remember that in Genesis 1.28. That was one of the mandates. There were three mandates, three sets of mandates. And in subduing and having authority over the earth, Adam was displaying in this one of three mandates the father's role of the leadership of the Trinity. Because remember, in each of these three roles, Adam was given three distinct roles to fulfill and to manifest what it means to be in the image of God. And in order to be in the image of God, image bearers of God, there must be, there will always be a Trinitarian revelation. The revelation that God is one in being, but three in persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Adam was created to be this way, and his uh, 
his progeny, his seed, his children were all to be this way collectively. And in each one of our lives, we as God's image-bearing people in Christ, who is the image of God, we're being conformed to the image of God's Son. Remember in Romans 8, 29, we now are responsible to be understanding and knowing and pursuing and being obedient to be displaying God's image bearer, his Trinitarian personhood. And so Adam was given authority to do what? Take dominion and rule. And in the same way, we are being responsible being given authority to take dominion and rule. Rule over what? First of all, rule over this earth of our lives. To rule over yourself by self-control and obedience. Rule yourself by the Spirit. Be ruled by the Spirit. And then to take that rule that we are exercising within our own personhood as the church together and corporately is that body of Christ that is obeying this mandate and taking that mandate into the world so they will see that there is a God who rules over the affairs of men. Amen? But they won't see it unless we're ruling over ourselves by the Spirit. And not only royal, but also the priest. I'm not going to do the prophet part. The priest, he is to be a priest. Adam is to be the priest. 2.15 of Genesis, remember, he says, what? Work and keep the garden. Work and keep the garden. The place where God has set Adam, he is responsible to work and keep that place, that sanctuary, that place where God dwells with his people. Well, what do we mean by working and keeping the garden? I don't know what this is in your notes, but if you were, you, don't, you can put it down in your notes if you don't have it. We've done it before. Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. The Levites were given, that was the priestly family of Aaron, I mean, um, of, uh, from Le- the tribe of Levi. They were given the responsibility, the men were given the responsibility to tending to the affairs of the religious activities of the nation. And so in so doing, in the tabernacle specifically, which was the presence of God's glory upon the earth, they were to work and keep or guard and maintain. Guard and maintain. That's the way those same Hebrew words are rephrased in Numbers 3, 7, and 8. The same words that are used in Genesis 2, 15. So Adam was to guard the temple of God, the place of God, from the pollution and the incursion of anything outside of the garden, anything that was not of the glory, of the presence, of the holiness of God. Adam was to say, you're not coming in here. And he also was to be maintaining through his walk with God and his fellowship with God in obedience, which we see in Genesis 16 and 17. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. And through that obedience, he was maintaining his fellowship with God and his worship of God. That's the priest. That's what he was to do as priest. That's who we are to be as God's people. And the basis of Adam's ability to do all of these mandates was what? His absolute obedience, which we saw is a failure in Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. Remember, he partook of the fruit. <clears throat> As to Jesus' royal rule, we will remember that the angel told Mary that she would have a son. Remember what he said? The son, and he said, the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So, and that's in Luke 1, 32 and 33. And it's also echoing what? The promise that God gave to the people through Isaiah. Remember in Isaiah chapter 9, there is a son coming. And of the, gov- of the increase of his government, there will be no end. He will sit on the throne of his father David. And so this is the one who is being anointed to be God's royal son. He is born into the world as God's royal son. But there comes a day when he needs to be anointed anointed by the Spirit to walk in the good and in the empowerment of that mandate that he's been given. And he can only do that. May I repeat that? He can only do that. He can only do that to the pleasing of God by the Spirit. Had Jesus stepped into this role apart from being anointed by the Spirit, he would have usurped God's way of dealing and ministering. He had to be anointed. Had he not, he would have usurped God's way, God's means. And I have to be careful of that in my life. We're called to be a certain people and to minister. And we assume sometimes, well, that means that I kind of have to do this and do that and do other. And yeah, you're right. But it doesn't mean that we are to do it apart from the Holy Spirit. Because to do it apart from the leading and the ministry and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we are usurping God's means. So I have to be careful. I don't know about you. I have to be careful. I have to make sure as best I can in the Spirit, by discerning the Spirit and listening to the Spirit, am I walking, am I ministering, am I teaching, am I thinking, am I desiring, am I doing whatever it is I'm doing by being led by your Spirit, or is it something else that's leading me, and therefore I am an idolater in that area, usurping God's means. Amen? Amen? We have to be careful. You see, it's not so much we're doing so many bad things. We're doing too many things apart from the leading of the Spirit. And any time we do anything apart from the leading of the Spirit, it's called idolatry. It's idolatry. And that's the major issue in our lives, isn't it? Even though Jesus was born as the king, he is the king. How do we know that? These men came to worship him in that house. Were you here when we talked about the wise men coming in? He is the king of Israel. But yet he still had to be anointed for his mission in the same way that David had to be anointed. David was declared to be God's king before the foundation of the world. We know that all that God does upon the earth is before the foundation of the world, set in his purpose, Ephesians 1, 4. We know that, that everything that God does upon the earth has already been set in his will, his purpose, and in his decree it comes forth. Don't you know that? All we're seeing right now in our lives is the unveiling of his eternal purpose being decreed upon the earth. That's why God knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen, not only because he knows, well, I know that if I do this, Chris would do that, and Sue would do that. and uh, He knows it, not necessarily essentially by that, but he knows it essentially because he decrees. He decrees. He decrees. He decrees. Remember that Jesus' baptism was his anointing. Remember that? It was his anointing as the royal son. Let's recall the Old Testament significance of anointing. 
the attestation and authority from heaven. The attestation, what does that mean? You're the king, and now I give you my authority. Got it? Attestation and authority. Those two are in the anointing. You're the king, and you have my God's authority. That's what's in the anointing. So we see that in 1 Samuel 10.1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, "He Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? And then of David in 1 Samuel 16, 12 and 13. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint David, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. See, it's a pouring on. Do you notice? It's a pouring on. The Holy Spirit is poured on Jesus. Remember the heavens open and the the Spirit of God, like a dove, came upon him, poured on him from the Father by the Spirit. And oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. Jesus is anointed in the midst of the brethren. John sees this. I don't know if anyone else saw it, but John saw it. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed or came upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord descending like a dove, remember, and coming to rest on Jesus in verse 16. So what you see there is the fulfillment of what is pictured in First Samuel and Saul, and then second, um, and First Samuel and Saul, and also chapter ten, and then sixteen in First Samuel of David. You see, we have the the one who is being pictured in all of that Old Testament activity. All of it is gathered together now, and is placed on Jesus. He himself, by himself, and in himself, through the Spirit, fulfills absolutely every dot and tittle of God's purpose for humanity. And he does it for us, on behalf of us. See, now Jesus is consecrated by the Spirit to do what? With authority to establish God's kingdom. By the way, God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Matthew uses these two phrases 37 times. Remember, the emphasis in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is God's anointed son, Messiah, king, who has come to establish the kingdom of God upon the earth. In other words, has come to establish upon the earth what he intended to happen in Genesis 1 and 2, knowing beforehand that Adam would not be able to accomplishment. What do you mean he knew it ahead of time? Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4. Let's put scripture to scripture. He knew it already, Rochelle. He already knew it. He was already prepared for this. Now, his second Adam, his last Adam, where is that from? Last Adam. First Corinthians 15, 45. His last Adam, his real Adam, his real man, this is what humanity is to be about. This is what God made us to be when we look at Jesus. And now he's been given authority to establish on the earth what Adam was supposed to have established on the earth through his obedience to the three mandates. So now Jesus is consecrated to establish the kingdom of God in keeping with Adam's mandate. Remember 
subdue and have dominion. And you see, I gave you some scriptures. I think First Peter four eleven, five eleven, Jude twenty five, Revelation one six. I think did I give you those scriptures down there? Okay, good. And Jesus will establish God's kingdom through His obedience and by His words and deeds. So by the obedience of His personal fidelity to God, by the obedience of His personal fidelity, His personal obedience and fellowship to God the Father, never sinning. That's the criteria. You see, because Jesus, listen carefully to me, Jesus is the only man who did and who could earn God's pleasing and God's will to be done. He's the only one. You see, God's will for man had to be earned through obedience, starting with Adam if you do, don't do that, you will. But if you don't, you're going to die. Remember that? And Jesus is the only man who earns God's way for humanity through his absolute obedience. Nobody else can earn it. And we, and he earns it for us and on our behalf knowing that we cannot, but as a man, he earns it. And when he is earning that, the Bible says that we were in Christ. And so all of God's people were positionally, spiritually in the mind and in the intention of God some way, however this works, I don't get it. All of us and all of God's people were in Christ experiencing absolute perfect obedience because he did it for us and at us so that he could go to the cross and take our disobedience upon himself and justly pay the full price. You see what I mean? Is that to say we don't have to worry about obeying God anymore? Of course not. Because if that's how you think, you've missed the whole point of grace. But you see, this is why the Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there's no more any condemnation right now for those of us who what? Are in Christ. It doesn't say who go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday school. I kind of wish it did, but it doesn't. <laughs> It doesn't say anything about us. It says everything about Christ. Aren't you glad of that? See, this is what Jesus will establish God's kingdom through his obedience and by his words and deeds. And this is what the apostle Peter tells Cornelius. Remember when he leaves the, the, the sheet, the, the thing on the, the, the uh, deck up there and coming down and whatever. He goes to Cornelius' house, the uh, centurion, the Gentiles, those nasty, filthy people. And guess, guess what? He's going to administer the grace of God and the goodness and the forgiveness of God and the glory of God to those who are who are dominating him. Can you imagine somebody, if we've been conquered by Russia, and one of the preachers goes to a Russian general to offer salvation to him. Like, are you kidding? These people are our oppressors. They weren't oppressors. They were people, they were God's people waiting for God's timing to birth them into the kingdom. 
They're not oppressors. They're not enemies in that sort of a way. They are the potential people of God waiting for the release of the Spirit in their lives to bring them into the kingdom. That's who they are. By the way, well, I won't go down that street. And so, I can't keep going down every street I think of. So, this is what Peter says in Acts 10. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. When did he anoint him? In Matthew 1, I'm sorry, Matthew 3, what? 16. Now, we're just staying in Matthew there. You have Luke and so on, but we won't worry about that. When did he anoint him? In Matthew 3, 16. Jesus is, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with, with the Spirit. You see, it's the same thing that Matthew 1, 3, 16 says. And with power. This is what John said. Remember in verse 11. He will baptize with the Spirit and with power. You know, this is what he's going to do. This is who he is. He went about doing good and healing. I said words and deeds and obedience and all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, Emmanuel. And you shall call his name, remember, in Isaiah 9, what? Emmanuel. God is with us. That's Emmanuel right there. Even though Peter doesn't say it. That's where it is. Before proceeding to the next two truths, I just want to say a couple more things. We need to remember that Jesus came to be anointed by the Spirit to accomplish God's eternal purpose as stated in the title, Emmanuel, God with us. I've already said that. I'm sorry, Isaiah 7, 14. His name is Emmanuel. I think I said 9. In chapter 123, Matthew gives us the definite. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. What is the significance of this name? It's a name which says something glorious and most glorious about fellowship it's a name but it's a fellowship name it's like father god's name for us is father and it's a name that god wants us to say like jesus says all the time because it's a name that is indicative or reveals the best the closest the most intimate fellowship that we have with god the best way you can say it is what jesus says father my father So what is the name of the significance? It tells us of God's quintessential purpose for his people. If we were to boil it down into a nutshell, I suppose that's how to say it. What would we say is God's quintessential purpose for us? In one word. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. If I were to boil down God's purpose for us. And if I were to boil down the way God mostly glorifies himself and has chosen to bring about the brilliance of the glory of the revelation of his nature and character, I would say it in one word, Joe, Emmanuel. Just one word. You see, we say that word and we just say it and move along and we say Emmanuel. You know, no. It's a mountain of a word because it has eternity inside of it that before the foundation of the world the people would experience a personal intimate fellowship with god the father this is what peter says and i won't read it in second peter chapter one that we have been made partakers of the divine nature listen to this in john 118 john tells us about the intimate oneness of jesus and the father is there any more more intimate fellowship and relationship between jesus and the father no Here's what he says. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
Now, King James translates the Father's side as bosom. And I've looked up every time in the, uh, the Greek the word is used, it's bosom. Although the more modern versions say side. What is more, what is closer for you and your son or daughter to walk side by side or for you to embracing your son or daughter to your chest? Which is closer? Which is closer? Side by side or the embracement and bringing that child to you as close as you can? Which one is closer? The bosom. So it's a translation thing. So I don't like Abraham's side. No, it's Abraham's bosom. And so Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. He is in the most intimate fellowship with God. And this is what he does and what God will do for us and where God is taking us in Christ. And as expressed in this word, Emmanuel, that we are the people of God's bosom intimacy. All of this is to show that Jesus has come to take us back to the closest fellowship with God, to enjoy the Father's love and joy. The Father's greatest joy is to share the same love that he has for his Son with us. Remember in John seventeen twenty six. See, today we have a foretaste of this intimate love that is coming on the day when we will see him face to face, that intimate fellowship.